This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Nomad's Big Brother wants to know you. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izex. Hi. And this week we are on the second of our long string of movie episodes. I'm already tired. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, this movie, at least you could rest while you watch it a fair bit. I took a nap. I full on did. I had to watch this twice. (laughs) I, I will say overall, I like this one, but yeah, it is, it does drag a bit. <laughs> I, I agree with this, that there's a certain flow you have to get into for this movie. It's got those really long drawn out kind of 2001 style effect shots. Yes. I, I guess, you know, it's good that we already covered uh, 2001 because it's uh, very much an influence here. <laughs> so we've moved on from the bombastic, fast-paced editing that was pioneered in Star Wars to a slower, more contemplative editing style in the first of the Star Trek movies titled, very simply, Star Trek The Motion Picture. And there is some motion, yes. Yeah, a little bit. If you pay a a little bit of attention. There's some disturbing motion in places that we'll get to. Yes. I will say, before we get too much into it, that... Of all the Star Trek movies, this one kind of comes off to me as the most creepy. Yeah. Just because of some some of of the slow movement and pace of it and things like that. So, yeah, just sort of an FYI there. There is definitely a little bit of that kind of tone to to bits and pieces of it. The the way that it shows some of the background visuals and things is it it does a good job at some of the like foreboding space stuff. Yes. Yep, this is, you know, we're, we're counting stuff that is well beyond our wheelhouse generally, and we should probably be on our toes. So this was uh, released in 1979, which was a full 10 years after the final episode of the original series. So it's, this is a very weird circumstance because... The original series was was decently popular, but had a god-awful time slot, got almost canceled every time it ran, and didn't technically have enough episodes to get into syndication. Yes. But that didn't stop anyone from putting it into syndication. (laughs) Yeah, like, people want to kind of watch this here. They they enjoy it. Let's let's get it out there, yo. (laughs) Well, as I remember from a bunch of history stuff I was looking up for this, uh, Desilu was bought out by Param- by not Paramount, by a larger corporation that also owned Paramount. It was rebranded as Paramount Television, and then they licensed out the rights to Star Trek to networks for syndication, which got popular and led to a lot more networks running in syndication. So it became incredibly popular and well known. This is when it really turned into like that full on cultural force that we millennials grew up with yes star trek was sort of a thing that people you know were commonly aware of even people that didn't watch the show so by the time you get to uh the late 1970s they're talking about using star trek to headline a new block of paramount tv 
as a new TV show called Star Trek Phase 2. I've heard of this, yes. Yeah, so this would have been basically a direct sequel to the original series. It would have had almost the entire normal main cast, except Leonard Nimoy didn't want to come back. Um, Some people say for typecasting reasons, some people say because of a dispute on royalty payments. It's kind of mixed. Uh, Both things definitely happened, but which ones influenced which time he didn't want to continue or a little vague <laughs> yes yeah, so there's maybe some cross lines as far as you know the accounts there so he was going to be replaced with a younger vulcan character sonak uh yeah was he sonak it's not the young vulcan character that appears in the movie he had a different name okay <laughs> <laughs> he was going to be replaced with the younger vulcan character and also they were going to introduce um a new first officer who was going to be commander decker not played by the same person who plays him in this movie. We're going to get into cast stuff in a minute. This all gets a little muddled and confusing. Yes. Uh, and also navigator Lieutenant Ilea, who also appears in the movie, uh, was going to use the same actor. Um, she originally came on thinking she was going to be doing a TV show and then later was told that she was doing a movie. It's like, oh, uh, so it's going to be a, a one-time thing as opposed to an ongoing gig. Um uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, they got as far as doing some like test footage and proof of concept things for the uniforms and and sets and stuff for Star Trek Phase Two. Uh, had a couple of loose scripts going, but then they decided that with the success of movies like Star Wars and the kind of sci-fi film things going, that they were going to release some of the ideas that they were playing with for Star Trek Phase Two into an actual motion picture instead of making it a television series. Oh. So instead of more uh, Star Trek TV, we got uh, Star Trek the motion picture and the, the se- subsequent sequels until, you know, I guess things boiled over and I was like, let's do Next Generation later. Yeah, then they got into a TV show later in the 80s uh, after the movies were making bank, basically. Yes. Uh, I, th- I think the Vulcan was Zahn. Oh, uh, yeah, Zahn. <laughs> what is I don't understand the Vulcan <laughs> names. My God. Just... <laughs> They're alien. It's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. I've never often heard alien names that sound like names. Like even in, I know that it's a human thing, but that's kind of all we're going off of. But even with other cultures, even when you hear a name in a language that you have like no familiarity with, often it mm-hmm. sounds like something that's credibly a name. Yes. They just don't do that very often with aliens. <laughs> Especially in uh, Star Trek here. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's some other uh, series and, you know, uh, you know, uh, media. You know, the, the folks, alien names do tend to be a bit more realistic in some fashion. Uh, as far as, you know, this seems like several things put together that might have meant something, you know, centuries ago, but now has been sort of corrupted by the evolution of language to be sort of just, this is a name. And what it actually means anymore doesn't really matter because it's usually named after, you know, your great grandfather or something like that. And, you know, it's just sort of been passed down. And, you know, you know the, the meaning is more the people as opposed to what the actual words were originally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things sort of roll off the tongue in certain ways, I guess. So by the time you get to making this an actual you know, movie, they ran through a bunch of different scripts. Um, Roddenberry had had a few script ideas uh, pretty early on. 
he really he was really attached to this uh, idea that he called the God thing, which some elements of that made it into this movie. We'll get into you know the movie in a minute. Yes, uh, <laughs> but that was really kind of a a large kind of omnipotent alien creature, extra dimensional thingy-mabob that like the Enterprise crew would have to get to and interact with and kind of make peace with so that it wouldn't destroy Earth out of godly something or other. So basically Gene Roddenberry was like, I, I want to keep having these superpowered aliens. Yeah, um, Gene okay, Roddenberry yeah. had a yeah. thing. <laughs> he had this long-running thing about what if God was a superpowered extra-dimensional alien. And he just loved it and kept trying to put it into shit. So, you know, Q, you know, Kukukan, even Charlie X to a degree, so... <laughs> Um, they were really working on a script idea for a while that was later turned into some novels, so there's a lot of details about this that involved, uh, I think Spock may have been the captain, and then uh, there was a lot of weird sort of investigation of an alien creature, and then some time travel where the Enterprise crew wound up going back in time to the beginning of Primordial Earth, and it turns out that they're the ones who started the DNA chain that would later evolve into humans. Wait a second. I thought in Doctor Who they established this because an alien spacecraft exploded. Yeah. And then in <laughs> in Next Gen they established it's because Picard stopped some sort of backward dimensional something or other. Yeah, the 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 anti-time bud uh spot. Yeah. That he also started. So, you know. Mhm. Paradox. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! Time travel. So then, then they kind of combined. They took. The, they decided that one was too cerebral. That one would have like third eye stuff, a bunch of new agey stu- things that you know were popular in the seventies. But the eighties are coming. We we have to change our gears here, guys. Yeah. So by the time they get to what they actually did, they started filming on a very tight production schedule and budget that led to them filming when they only had two thirds of the script finished. Whoops. Hmm. Um, I guess we we should uh, figure out what the rest of the movie's going to be about soon. <laughs> so that's a bit why this movie can feel a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> Almost like it's two movies kind of grafted together with some bits of the beginning kind of referencing the latter bits. And yeah. <laughs> also, from what I've heard, uh, they finished the effects sequences very, very late in production which is why they're not edited at all. Hmm. They just took the full effects shot and shoved it into the movie. <laughs> we want to have as much of this as possible because, dang it, we, we did all the hard work for it. So, uh, enjoy. And we should clarify that I think both of us were working with the original theatrical release. There was a 2001 director's edition, or director's cut that came out on DVD that changed up some of the editing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure mine was the longer version, too, so... So, okay, um, we get to Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is now written with a story by Alan Dean Foster, who's uh, pretty well-known, even I recognize that name. Yes, me too. He uh, was the ghostwriter for the novelization of Star Wars. He worked on this movie, of course. He wrote a lot of novelizations based on episodes of the animated series, which is interesting. Yes, which, uh, you know, this movie takes place, you know, just a few years after the animated series takes place. So it's, it's like he's already steeped in the uh, the lore and all that stuff. So wrote a lot of Star Trek novelizations, uh, more than 20 standalone novels, 
has several book series, well-known science fiction author. Mm-hmm. And then was adapted into a screenplay by Harold Livingston, who's a decently well-known screenwriter. Doesn't have a ton of production credits, but uh, has worked on a few movies before and after the motion picture. I believe, uh, you know, this is one of his later writing credits, um, but uh, he also worked on things beforehand like Fantasy Island and uh, Mannix and Mission Impossible. And then, because we're dealing with a giant movie, we have a famous director. Dun, dun, dun. Was directed by Robert Wise, who who won Best Director and Best Picture for West Side Story. Oh, nice. And Sound of Music. Ah. I hear the hills are alive. (laughs) Was also uh, involved with, I think, was a producer on The Day the Earth Stood Still and a lot of other... Uh, sci-fi B-movies of that era. He's also uh, involved with the Andromeda strain. Then we actually only have a couple of guest stars, because yes. <laughs> all of the original series cast returns, you know, we got William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, George Takei, Michelle Barrett, Walter Koenig, Nicole Nichols. <laughs> we also have uh, Grace Lee Whitney as, as Jan- uh, Janice Rand. We have uh, yep. Michelle Barrett as Dr. Chapel. We even have Mark Leonard back. But not as a Vulcan or a Romulan. He's a Klingon captain. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really just a who's who of the original cast. Yes. <laughs> the two prominent new characters are Paris uh, Kambada. I hope I'm not butchering her name. Um, Kambada, yeah, I, th- I think that's pretty close. She's playing Lieutenant Ailea. She's an Indian actress and a model had been in several American movies like um, Wolves of the Wasteland. Can't see I've heard of that before. Yeah, it it looks like a weird, sexy, post-apocalyptic movie. It's like three women in bikinis in the post-apocalypse. That kind of thing. Yeah, she was like uh, Miss India, so uh, I guess that's kind of uh, where you get typecast. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, there. she was in several sci-fi titles of that kind of ilk, was also a guest star in TV shows like MacGyver and Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Ah, yes. She's credited as chairwoman. Well, I guess that's something there. <laughs> I also just learned this. My partner was looking up some stuff. I thought they recognized the the name. Um, Ilea is the name of the character, is the plural form of the largest part of the hip bone. So you got some Ileas in you right now. Yeah, your Ilia are the two, like, wings. They're called the wings of the hip. I, I'm, I'm, we'll have to note this information down, because I've actually thought about, what is that bit called, called before? <laughs> I mean, that's the plural. I actually forgot to write down the singular, but... Because Latin is weird, it pluralizes with an a with an i a. Yes. <laughs> and then we also have Stephen Collins playing Commander William Decker. Uh, people will probably best know him as Eric Camden in Seventh Heaven. I remember that uh, We show. are not going to talk about him much because he also admitted to having inappropriate sexual contact with three female minors in 2014. Yeah, that's not good. 
So we're not going to spend a lot of time on his career. He's just in this movie, and he shouldn't have been because at least one of them was around this time. There were like three different incidents ranging from the 70s to the uh, 2000s. Oh, dear. Uh, let's instead uh, talk about the uh, uh, the actress for Chief DeFalco instead. Sure. <laughs> uh, Marcy Lafferty uh, you know, from, from New York, and uh, she's uh, in a number of stuff in that, that sort of uh, uh, time period. Uh, you know, you know, she was also in Fantasy Island. She was also in Airplane 2, the sequel, um, <laughs> which was, you know, was in like the next movie after this. But uh, most importantly, though, she was also in the FBI. Ooh, we brought it back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the FBI, it's everywhere, man. Right, that's enough backstory. We need to get to the... <laughs> That's too much backstory. This is the most backstory we've ever had to give on a thing because there's so much history. The only reason to cover some of these is for the history and the connectivity in the sci-fi, sci-fi media genre. Yes, so this is a, a very much a, uh, a an inflection bridge point or something like that between you know the Star Trek that was and the Star Trek that was beginning at this point. Yes, this is a definite step up in production. These these sci-fi elements in this are really more interesting. They're trying to deal with bigger concepts. The special effects are incredible. Yes. Like, I have some critiques of how they edited the sequences in, but the special effects themselves are incredible, especially considering they did not have computer effects at this time. This is uh, three years before Tron even came out. Yeah, there's some bits it's like, my brain's like, this has got to be a computer effect, but no, this this is all practical. <laughs> So speaking of practical effects, we open on a vast illuminated cloud with like lightning bolts and things happening in it. Oh no, it's the dark cloud. Uh, three Klingon battleships are investigating, by which I mean shooting. Yeah, well, that's how Klingons investigate things. You know, if, it, if they shoot it and, they, and it dies, then you know you can beat it. If it doesn't die, you should probably leave it alone. <laughs> so their attacks do nothing. So this is in the second category. <laughs> And then the cloud shoots back, shrouding the ships in a blue electricity that makes them vanish. Disintegrated fully, yeah. <laughs> All of this was observed by a Federation comm station that calculates the cloud is not only going to go straight by them, but also is on a direct course for Earth. Earth, of course, being the yes, center uh, of the galaxy. Yeah, the Earth is always the, uh, the go-to place for your ultimate uh, superpower beings that seem to be unstoppable, so, you know. Meanwhile, on Vulcan, a long-haired Spock is meditating at the foot of a giant statue. I guess he's uh, embraced his hippie nature. That's excellent. He really has. Everyone has embraced their hippie yeah, nature I, I, in this movie. Be careful. You might start calling people Herbert. <laughs> he has been undergoing the colonar, I think. Uh, not to be confused with the colonoscopy. That's different. Yeah, this one is the Vulcan ritual to purge the last emotions out of the body, not purge yes. the <laughs> other things out of other places. Unless that's what Vulcan's called. Anyway. <laughs> They're about to give him a mystical pendant thing representing his embrace of all things good and logical, which makes you wonder, like, you have embraced all of logic. Here is a pointless ritual. Oh, yeah, procedure, you know. Just remember that you're now logical. And if you ever become not logical, you'll disappoint everybody because they did the uh, the ritual, you know. 
<laughs> he stops them from giving him the necklace, and the master mind melds with him and finds an alien intelligence is reaching out to his human side, and she throws the priceless ancient artifact at his feet, because you will find no answers here. Well, I guess I gotta go on an adventure now. Vulcans are so <laughs> dramatic. On Earth, the first time that we see Earth, like, they've done past Earth, they do past Earth all the time in the series. This is the first time we have seen contemporary Star Trek yes. era Earth. And it's uh, pretty pretty cool, actually. Mm -hmm. So Kirk is in San Francisco. I would love to know who decided that everything important in Earth history now happens in San Francisco. Well, you see, during the Third World War, everything outside San Francisco was exploded, <laughs> so... So yeah, Kirk's in San Francisco. He's speeding to the new Enterprise, which has just undergone a massive refit, which is why it looks different and cooler yeah, so and updated. It's the same ship, but it's completely new also. He meets the new young science officer, Commander Sonak, who is a young Vulcan. And Kirk informs him that he's going to be meeting him on the Enterprise ahead of schedule because they've got some really important, urgent, super urgent things to do. So get there in an hour, buddy, even though it was going to not be leaving for another well, week. Uh, I guess we're going to be getting up to the ship then. Um, see you later then, man. Admiral Kirk has to head to the orbiting space station because the Enterprise's transporters are still not operational. So Scotty has to take him on a live five-minute tour of the exterior yes, of the it ship. it is actually very, very long. And on one side, it's like, okay, the fans of the original series are finally getting a close-up like tour of the Enterprise. And that's really cool. And then for another four minutes... <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay, we get it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, if this was the only one, like, you know, this is the beginning of the movie, they're slowly mm -hmm. building up, they're giving you a nice big tour of your set piece ship. If this was the only super long sequence in the movie, I don't think people would have yeah, a problem yeah, with it. It would be kind of a quirk, but yeah. But this is probably the shortest <laughs> of these. But yeah, we get a good, we get a tour. So... <laughs> So Kirk now gets to take command of the ship because of some emergency or... or I know. Uh, what, what does the, uh, the, 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 the captain of the ship uh, you know, say about this? We're not going to meet him for a while because first Kirk goes to the bridge and everyone goes, oh my God, oh, it's Kirk. And the entire crew is yeah, there. Well, it's great. Except for McCoy and Spock. But, you know, they're like retired or something like that. Yeah. So you know, they're not going to be in the rest of this movie for sure, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, they're gone. They're <laughs> retired. Then the captain of the ship isn't on the bridge. He's down in engineering doing cool hands-on stuff because he's a very hands-on captain. Uh, I hope he's not, uh, you know, getting under front of the chief engineer. <laughs> so Kirk has to go down there to explain the situation to Captain Decker, who's, you know, now Commander Decker. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, you're still technically ranked as captain, but you're going to be a commander now. Mm -hmm. So he's helping out Scotty with a the problem they're having with the transporter. And he's pretty pissed when Kirk tells him that he's taking control because Kirk has no idea about the new ship. Decker's been there for the entire refit, hands-on with everything. So Kirk is basically not qualified to do the thing he's trying so, to do. Uh, you know, maybe we could work out an arrangement where the Admiral, you know, Kirk here is more telling Decker, like, we need to go investigate this thing and I'll Lord, sort of let you do your thing, but we're not going to be doing that, are we? No, no. <laughs> no, he's an admiral. He has orders from Starfleet. Go away. You're executive officer now. Nothing to do about it. Yeah. Sorry, Decker. So soon after this argument, transporters still not going. 
But two crew members start to beam aboard, and the transporter goes bluge and sends a giant beam into the ceiling, which is interesting in engineering. Oh, uh, they can't turn the thing off, and as they say, it's lucky that the things that materialize didn't live very long. Yeah, they uh, kind of, uh, you know, remember that one bit from Galaxy Quest where they're like, you know, you know, the, what happened to the, the crit- critter? And it's like, oh, it's uh, here, and it's died, and then it exploded. Yeah. The animal is inside out, yes. <laughs> and it exploded. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but they just leave that bit to the imagination here. Yep, but I will say, we'll get to Galaxy Quest one of these days. That is purely the best line read in the history of cinema. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I also remember being really freaked out by this transporter scene when I was a kid. Yeah, it's just, as I said, yeah, this movie has some creepiness going on here. It's like, this seems like a horror, horrific way to just, like... This is routine, 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 and you're dead in the most painful way. Yeah, they're transporting them. It's just the transporter beam. You've seen it a million times. Then their bodies start turning into this horrific flesh mound, and they start screaming. Yes. Um, No, thank you. So one of the people who was beaming up was Sonak. So now Decker has to also be science officer. Well, at least we're heavy on uh, officers at this point, so uh, we should be good to go, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirk then orders the entire crew to the recreation deck to show them a recording of the comm station being destroyed, uh, which does not really leave everyone feeling optimistic about the situation. So we're going to go out there and try not to have the exact same thing happen to us. They finally fix the transporters so they can get up the last of their crew, who, including uh, Lieutenant Ilea. She's a Delton, and everyone goes, oh, a Delton. We never find out why. Maybe there's like 12 of them? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, She and Decker apparently had a thing previously. He was stationed on her home planet. But don't worry, she's taken a vow of celibacy. Yes. Now, now often folks sort of think that she's saying this to keep Kirk from like going, you know, trying to uh, woo her or something like that. But I'm much more certain that it's more of a... You know, Kirk's sort of seeing them interact and being like, you know, no, Kirk, I'm not dating Decker. I don't plan to sleep with him. There's not going to be any hanky-panky here. I'm here to do my job now. Let's get get that sort of built business out of the way before you, like, freak out or something. Yeah, that's definitely how it comes across. It's definitely still shitty. Yes. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird that she has to mention that she's taken a vow of celibacy and it's on record. Yes. The only reason that you would possibly do this is if this is the like horniest species in the galaxy, and the only way that they're allowed to be around other people is if they commit to a vow of celibacy. No, that would be uh, you know, interesting backstory, and uh, if that's true, then I would kind of hope that they would have mentioned that at some point, but you know. <laughs> but we don't know anything about this, and also the only way that that's not sexist in that scenario is if it's a guy. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not. Also... The sexual tension in this movie. There's a ton of sexual tension in this movie. Yes. It's between Kirk and every other male character. <laughs> you know, oh, Kirk is really happy to be back with his bros. Very, very happy. Like I w- when I was younger, before I'd seen a lot of original series, like I was familiar with Next Gen. It's what I grew up with. I'd seen bits and pieces of these movies. Like I'd seen smatterings of these movies. I saw a bunch of people saying that Kirk is bi. And I thought it was just the normal 
everyone does the, like, you know, Kirk and Spock or any two male characters that are near each other for five minutes are gonna get their Tumblr romance novel. No. Kirk is bi. <laughs> There's no other way I can see interpreting that in, these, in this series. The amount of sexual tension that Kirk has with everyone... It's kind of intense. <laughs> I see no other way to read Kirk as bi or pan. I am just so excited by everyone, and they're awesome, and I love being with them. The sexual tension between him and Decker is is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even when they're like disagreeing and being at odds, it's sort of like well, you have all yeah. of it, like. <laughs> So we're about to get here. The other new crew member that beams up is McCoy, whose Kirk is pulled out of retirement. And he gives him lovey-dovey eyes. Yes. And Spock lovey-dovey eyes. And Decker, they have that, like... De he and Decker have the antagonistic, shitty um, romance movie relationship. Like, there is no sexual tension between Kirk and any female in this entire movie. Well, I guess, to a certain degree, other than Ilea... The, the ladies don't super matter in this one, unfortunately. No, they there, don't. I don't like that. Ilea gets all of the screen time, and Uhura's just in the background going like, Hi. And uh, Chapel's kind of there as well, but once McCoy's on the ship, then she's like, Well, I guess mm -hmm. I got my uh, MD for nothing then. Yep. <laughs> so McCoy's back. He is currently sporting a full beard and 70s disco outfit. Yes. The future's going to be glorious. <laughs> I wish that... I, I want to see... This has to be the the retro future 70s disco revival. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, this is that thing, right? Like, how now we've got 90s nostalgia, mm -hmm. which means in 10 years we're going to have 2000s nostalgia, which was 70s nostalgia because it's just on this cycle. Yes. <laughs> it and, uh, you know, uh, this is set in 2273, so, you know. Yeah, so we're the just, 70s again. we've just cycled back around to 70s nostalgia, so disco is back. Yes. Future disco, though. <laughs> Future disco, which is even more gay. <laughs> Excellent. So, McCoy is not really pleased that he's basically been drafted even though he was retired, even after Kirk explains the situation. Also, this is the... I don't know. I like it, because McCoy is so irate and angry, but it's the dumbest line. Yeah. <laughs> it was, McCoy, there's a thing out there. It's like, why is anything we don't understand a thing? <laughs> what do you want to call it? Um, a doohickey, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to be, uh, you know, angry over here. <laughs> yeah. So now everyone's on board and the Enterprise is ready to leave. Except Spock, he's not here. Very slowly. Yeah. Very, very slowly. So they immediately jump to warp speed inside a solar system, which is apparently bad. Well, they at least passed Jupiter, but, you know, they, they're accelerating, yeah. Yeah, though they must be. Like, you... Someone would have to do the calculation, but the amount of time it always, they always show this, the amount of time it takes them to get from Earth to Jupiter is under a minute. Yeah, uh, They must be past light speed. Oh, certainly, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, trying to remember, like, Jupiter's like uh, four or five AU out. I, I would have to look up to be sure, but, you know, one AU is about eight minutes of light time, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, Impulse 
is already four or five times light speed. Yes. <laughs> At least in this era of Star Trek. Next gen, it's also pretty fast. Uh, Enterprise, not so much. Other eras, I don't know. Because, you know, ship moves at the speed of plot. So, anywho. So, Scotty warns them against using warp since they haven't gotten their intermix ratio fully simulated yet. But they don't have time, so just do it. Oh, okay. Uh, can I give you at least, you know, it'll be done in 12 hours sort of thing, Captain? No, right away? Oh, nope. Dang it. <laughs> No, the thing, the the thing is only three days away. So even wasting seconds, I guess, is bad. All right. Uh, bye, everyone. It's been nice knowing you. This apparently causes the ship to create an unstable wormhole instead of entering warp. Whoops. Hmm, I guess we uh, broke through space time here and, uh, well, we'll be lucky if we end up where we need to be. They are able to slow down so that they'll break back into sublight speeds, but an asteroid is pulled into the wormhole ahead of them, and Kirk orders them to hit it with phasers, but Decker countermands his orders and responds with photon torpedoes, blowing up the asteroid just before they drop out of the wormhole. Wait a moment. That means Decker's broken Kirk's orders. <gasps> yes. Decker has gone above the chain of command. Hmm. So Scotty messes with the warp drive while they're sitting there, and Kirk decides to have it out with Decker, and McCoy tags along to play referee. Decker, it turns out, stopped him from using the phasers, because they've upgraded the phaser system with power from the engines. So, when the engines go into an unstable power mix, these phasers shut off for safety reasons. So Decker was right, because Kirk doesn't know how the ship works. Hmm. Well, um... Good on you for saving our lives, but, mmm, about, you know, breaking, you know, ignoring my orders. Furthermore, Decker believes Kirk just wanted this command, and he doesn't know the ship. He hasn't been in space in over two years, and he's just pulling rank to get his command back using this emergency as a cover. Yes, add your point. <laughs> Kirk does what Kirk does. Yeah. <laughs> so Decker leaves. Uh, making lovey-dovey eyes at Ilea, who was waiting in the hallway. Uh, McCoy stays and tells Kirk that this is an obsession with the Enterprise, and it's blinding him to other options that could possibly be better. This discussion is interrupted by a long-range shuttle intercepting them and asking for permission to dock. Hmm. Well, it must be some sort of courier just to be meeting us up in the middle of nowhere near the solar system. So on the shuttle, everyone is surprised to find Spock, dun, dun, dun. who's immediately assigned to take science officer, even though he's inactive. Well, he can look at the thing, and it'll be fine, right? I don't know how Starfleet works. You've got a retired guy that you redrafted, and then a guy who's in inactive duty just shows up. It's like, okay, you're science officer now. Kirk's an admiral now. He could just sort of do stuff like this, I guess. And Decker doesn't care because he's already got two jobs. So. Well, now he's back down to one. So, you know, he's probably happy about it, yeah. actually. Everyone, including McCoy, is very happy to see Spock. But Spock is being all standoffish because he's pledged to do the no emotion thing. Yeah, so he's extra logical Spock guy now. So, Yeah, because for some reason, all Vulcans have decided that being logical means be as standoffish and rude to your comrades as possible because it's very logical to alienate everyone that you have to work with and depend on for your literal life. Yes. Though, I guess in his defense, he's been with other Vulcans for a while. 
And if they're just kind of like this to everybody, he's probably not used to being around other people anymore. That is true. <laughs> Later, they have a more private meeting, and Spock clarifies that the reason he came back is because while he was on Vulcan, he began sensing a super space consciousness with thoughts of perfect logical order. And he thinks that it's coming from the cloud thing that they're about to intercept. So I was giving you're heading the same way. And, you know, Spock, Spock might be able to finish his super logic training here. That's kind of cool. Speaking of intercepting, they have intercepted the cloud. Dun, dun, dun. Though technically it's like a day later, but you know. <laughs> yeah, they're about a day from Earth at this point. Yeah, so uh, best to sort this out yeah, before, uh, you know, gets there, so. The cloud does not respond to any attempts at communication, but there does seem to be an object at its center that they begin heading toward. And the thing is generating massive amounts of energy, apparently more than thousands of starships could. And it's also at least two AUs in diameter. So, you know, like the entire diameter of the Earth's orbit. That's, yeah, that's pretty big. Twice. Yeah. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> I guess they said that's just the cloud, the energy cloud. It's unclear how big the ship itself is. Well, the but... ship itself is pretty big still, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, at one point, they go, oh my god, it's orbiting Earth. How? I, good question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's well, bigger than Earth. Well, the cloud <laughs> does dissipate at some point, but we're, you know, further into things at that point, so they're not actually witnessing it. But yeah. Spock senses a puzzlement coming from the cloud because it's not getting responded to its attempts to communicate, but they haven't found any attempts to communicate. Hmm. Well, that's weird. Uh, have you tried the, the gold channel yet? This is apparently enough for the cloud to fire at them. Uh, the weapons that are used in the Klingons and the station, which are immediately deadly, but apparently the Enterprise has much improved shields now, and they're able to take one hit, but it does take their shields down, so they can't really take another one. So uh, we've demonstrated that this uh, cloud thing is more powerful than Nomad, because when Nomad zap them, they were at least able to resist that pretty easily. Yeah. Smock finds that... The thing did try to communicate, but at about a million megahertz. Well, that's pretty fast, actually. <laughs> so fast that the message only lasts a millisecond. He programs their computers to respond at the same frequency and transmits their greeting message just before they're destroyed by a second shot. Well, um, I, I guess they got the message then. Good. Yeah. And also they can turn off their shooty thing right before it hits the ship, which is nice. Yeah, so it's like... We're, we have our, our torpedo heading towards you, and it's all weird energy cracklingness, and then it just doesn't exist anymore. So they continue into the cloud to find a massive complex as its center. It's uh, too big to see, basically. Yes. <laughs> it's like the size of a planet, or bigger. You know, well, I, I think as far as the, uh, the specs for it goes, and uh, estimates for its size, it's like more like the size of a city, but still pretty dang big. <laughs> So the ships, the uh, alien ships send some sort of alien energy thingy to manifest on the Enterprise's bridge. It's a big, bright light beam. Uh, it begins to take over the computer and read all of their records. They're unable to do anything until Spock smashes the console with his bare hands. Hmm. Spock smash and apparently breaking the keyboard breaks the entire computer. Okay. The probe then grabs Ilya in an energy beam for a while before both of them disappear. Oh, she must have been transported somewhere. We'll go have to go rescue her then. 
Right. Then, not content with just taking their crew member, the Enterprise is grabbed by a tractor beam. It's too strong for them to pull away, and they are being dragged inside of the enemy ship. Dun dun dun! Uh, we're going to be uh, docking with it or something like that, aren't we? And we're going to have a, a a a run and gun through the the hallways as we fight these aliens here, aren't we? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be exciting. Oh, we can't have that in this movie. Okay, got it. <laughs> So Deku wants to fight and is pretty upset when Spock points out that they would be destroyed immediately if they tried to do that. Yeah, this ship seems to have them very much outclassed. Uh, Spock senses that they're being brought closer because this being of pure logic has an insatiable curiosity for everything. Oh, just wants to get to know us, you know? They then suddenly have an intruder on board as if they don't have enough problems. Oh, this is awkward. Uh, Well, let's go meet these visitors then. Silea so has returned, but now she's got a crystal thing in her throat. Oh, uh, this is weird. Silea, uh, what's up? She says that she was sent by Viger. Okay, who is Viger? Huh. Viger's the one who sent her. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> and the one that they took no longer functions. She was made to look like her so that she could communicate with all the carbon-based thingamabobs that seemed to be infesting the ship. Ah, so you're an android duplicate. Got it. She also appeared naked in the shower in her quarters, and there seems to be a button that Kirk hits on the wall that automatically robes her. Well, that's convenient. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wonder if this is a standard sort of uh, thing in their showers, actually. like It might be. My question is, fine, automatic robe button. That's kind of nice. Why is it on the other side of the room? Good question. <laughs> It's the, oh my god, cover yourself button. <laughs> Kinda. She also tells them that V'ger's headed to Earth to find its creator and join with them. Uh, she's very unhelpful otherwise. Well, this seems all sorts of mysterious here. Um, could you give us any more details? Not really. All right. It's like, who's the creator? The one that V'ger seeks. Who's V'ger? The one that seeks the creator. Okay, we're just going to go back Thank and you. forth in this then, aren't we? Hmm. They take her to sickbay and find that while she looks like Ilya, she's actually a machine with every organic function exactly duplicated. Hmm. So, um, kind of like Data in some ways, huh? A little bit. She seems to recognize Decker, leading Spock to think that Vidra may have copied her a little too exactly, and she might have memories of her past experiences that would let them use Decker's relationship with her as a way to get the probe on their side. That's a good plan. All right. So, uh, you know, are we going to, uh, you know, have a, a, a montage of them re-getting to know each other then? Not really. He shows her around the ship. She's confused by the reason that the ship needs a crew. Like, the Enterprise is fine without a crew. What's up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why they're here, to find out why they need a crew. And once they understand why they need a crew, they're going to be reduced to data patterns and put into long-term storage. Okay, then. Let's not explain how the ship works and that the crew is necessary for it to function. Uh, Decker uses this as an opportunity to have the probe agree to regain its memories so that it can better understand humans. Oh, sure. Makes sense. Uh, This is apparently done quite easily by giving her a funny hat. Yeah, it's kind of pretty, I guess. Mm-hmm. She remembers things briefly, but then goes right back to being proby. So it really didn't do much. It's like, uh, you know, doing some accessing here, but it's sort of a, I am a computer program uh, first, a person second, 
And whenever mm-hmm. that programming comes back in, it's going to demand primacy over whatever I'm up to. So, uh, Meanwhile, Spock has decided that he needs to go for a quick spacewalk. So he knocks out an engineer and grabs a spacesuit and an escape thruster thingy so that he can throw himself through a very creepy pulsating door. Yes. Um, I think the, uh, the appropriate term to use here is a, uh, a, a, a giant metal sphincter. Yep. It's exactly the appropriate term. Yes, and it has lights on it, too. So he uses the emergency eject button thingy to send himself through the door and enters the massive exposition chamber. Yes, uh, it's like a giant holodeck that's set up to just teach Spock about what V'ger's journey's been about. Yeah, so he sees what's probably V'ger's homeworld that's covered in mechanical cities and whatnot. And he enters a chamber with giant storage banks of... Every planet, ship, and galaxy that V'ger has encountered, the entire massive ship being V'ger itself. So, uh, we are dealing with some sort of super machine intelligence. Cool. Yeah. Smock attempts to mind meld with the giant illusion of Valia. It's like her databank instance is here, and it's active, so let's go talk to it. Yeah. But it's too powerful for him, and he gets thrown back through the door into the literal waiting arms of Kirk, who's also in a spaceship out to find him. Yeah, so, uh, I'll catch you, Spock. Well, that's actually a pretty good catch, you know, in all of, like, the massive space hangar here that, I, you know, just happened to be in the right place. Cool. So, Spock wakes up and has found, through his mind-melding, that Vidra comes from a planet that's all living machines, but they're all cold, logical machines with no emotion or other things, which makes them... Weird, not like Data, who's fun and lovable. Yeah, so uh, they don't have any ethical programs. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> And V'ger's trying to find answers to its own existence. Also, this experience seems to have let Spock enjoy his emotions again, because he's like, oh, V'ger can't even understand my feelings for you, Kirk. So, uh, yeah, being brought to something that is so super logical has sort of pushed Spock away from that goal of his. Interesting. Yeah. It's like, oh, pure logic sucks. Ah, it's without impetus. It is without you know, you go, you go ethics. It's 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 only you know putting the the data together. Nothing else. So V'ger and the Enterprise inside V'ger have now reached Earth's orbit, and it's trying to contact its creator. Uh, it's convinced that this is on Earth somehow. It's using an old radio transmission and binary code. Oh, that's a little weird. Uh, maybe we should run it through the computer and try to, you know, you know, match that up with something, you know, because maybe, you know, it's been uh, in contact with Earth before, you know? Yeah, that would be a thing that would make sense to do. Yeah. But no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so V'ger's pissed because the creator's not responding and it sends out a bunch of energy balls to purge the planet of the carbon-based life that are probably interfering with the creator being able to contact it. Hmm. This seems like a bad thing. Uh, let's not have everything on life on Earth be uh, killed here today. So could you not do that, please? So Spock suggests that V'ger is basically a child. Maybe they should treat it like one, which means Kirk starts yelling at it. Yeah, well, that's, that's about how Kirk tends to deal with kids here, so, you know. Yep. <laughs> he demands that the attack on Earth be stopped because he knows why the creator won't talk to him and knows the information about the creator. And if they destroy Earth, he's not going to tell. So uh, Robo-Aliyah is like, 
Uh, that's you. You must tell. You know, and the ship will shake otherwise. Yeah. So they are like, okay, well, Vijers agreed to see you in person. You better have the information. And Kirk goes, ooh, hmm. oh no. <laughs> well, uh, so this is what we call a bluff. Uh, <laughs> so the main three: Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Decker, and Aaliyah. Um, are taken to the central V'ger complex, the mega brain, central thingy-mabob. And uh, th- this is kind of one of my favorite like sets in any movie, really. <laughs> yeah, it's this massive thing. It's like the Giant's Causeway in, I think that's in Scotland. I can't remember if that's Scotland, Ireland, but the big, weird, like, hexagonal rock formations. Yes. Just as far as you can see, leading to this giant central enclosure that's when bright lights with the little pillar thingy it's really cool yes and uh you know I, you know robo alias is like oh i'm just gonna go over here now and they're like I, we're gonna fall if we go any faster here <laughs> she's gonna fall yes i felt so bad watching this she's on completely uneven ground in six inch heels she almost falls over twice yes it's like ergonomics let's have some in the future please <laughs> So they reach the central pillar and see a very familiar-looking satellite dish. Yes, it's it's almost like something that was very uh, recently launched at this point in time. So it's attached to Earth's Voyager 6 probe. Dun-dun-dun! It was us. Which was sent out by NASA about 300 years ago. Hmm. Well, uh, I guess we now know what V'ger is. Yeah, dirt covering the nameplate has made it spell V'ger instead of Voyager because the super intelligent race of machines can't comprehend dust. Yes. <laughs> and they don't have any cleaning supplies, so they just left it there. Voyager 6 was lost in what they used to call a black hole. We still do, but okay. You know, they, maybe they are like, maybe like 10 years ago, we used to call wormholes black holes for some reason, but then we stopped because that was silly. <laughs> <laughs> It's probably emerged on the far side of the galaxy. The machines found it, found it primitive, but basically one of their own, a machine, Mm -hmm. and interpreted its primitive programming very literally. So basically now they've created a giant massive machine that can do nothing but learn and try to return that data to its creator. Well, I guess if uh, you're going to be uh, amplifying a singular purpose, that's not a terrible one. So Vidra has now learned so much that it's basically become its own living, thinking organism. And this, of course, means that they, humans, are the creator. Yes. So uh, how do we convince this giant machine thing that seems to have contempt for carbon-based life that we actually were the ones that, you know, they're trying to contact? So what Kirk realizes is that the probe has been sending out a ready-to-transmit signal and it's waiting for the old NASA response. So go ahead and, you know, you know the... Enter the code to download. Yeah, they pull that up from the computer and send it, but V'ger has disconnected itself from the transmitter. Very willingly, because it wants to force the creator to come here. So uh, hopefully at least knows to hold off on the whole genocide thing in the meantime, because, you know. Yeah. So according to Spock, V'ger has now learned so much that it's at the very limits of what it can achieve, at least in our universe. So it needs to assign to a higher plane of being, but that requires going beyond logic. Yeah, because we 
can't possibly logically and mathematically demonstrate that there are other planes of existence. Yeah, no, unless you go to Megas no. 2, but you know. Well, that would be silly, because, you know, that's quantum physics, which... <laughs> that's not math. <laughs> you need human irrationality to even believe in such things. And then you can cast a magic spell, and everything's good. So, that's what it needs its creator for, to be able to evolve beyond itself. Decker, who still has a thing for the Ilea probe, decides that he is going to manually enter the final command sequence. And... That activates a beam of something or other that merges him with V'ger in a giant magical light beam. Also Ilea, I guess. robo Ilea. And she kind of comes up to him and is like, well, I guess they're together now. Uh, if V'ger was sort of in the probe at the time, I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I guess. The crew run for it and get back to the Enterprise just as V'ger vanishes leaving Earth safe. The crew is back on board the ship, and they're ready to head back out on their next adventure, because I guess they don't have to report this to anyone. Hooray! And uh, I, I, I guess uh, V'ger has ascended to a higher plane of existence. Uh, Kirk's plan to get the Enterprise back has finally come to fruition, and he doesn't have any uh, captain underneath him uh, causing problems to... Uh, to make him feel guilty or question his yeah. orders anymore. Woohoo! The captain that was here is dead. My ship now. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. This is like off we go. Let's go to our next thing. Then I was like, where? That away. Yeah, just, yeah, just seriously. Go where? Yeah. Where are we going? <laughs> it's like this ship doesn't have a steering wheel. I have to push buttons. Where are we going? <laughs> well, just just warp speed somewhere. Go to Pluto. See what's up. So, uh, the, the motion picture, Star Trek. Yeah, it does feel like two movies shoved together into one movie. Yes, uh, the, the, the movie where Kirk is trying to get the Enterprise back and kind of butting heads with Decker, and then Space Probe. Well, I think that it's... This is another one of those human irrationality is the only thing worth having plots. Kind of, Yeah. <laughs> But in an interesting way, because they have, they have an interesting thing with the probe that they only sort of go into. It's, in, it's inferred heavily, but they never really say it explicitly or talk about what it means or even try to acknowledge that it's killed a lot of people. It's like, yeah, it's kind of a mass murderer, but he didn't know any better. So we'll just, you know, ignore that, you know. So the thing is that the, the probe has been amplified in its singular quest for knowledge to the point that it's basically remembering things to death. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> like, every time it seems to shoot one of those beams or whatever at a planet or the space station or the Klingons, it's just converting them into a data stream that it then stores in its memory. Yeah, well, how else are you going to make sure you got every little detail about all of it, you know, com completely read out yeah you have to take it all apart and read it all and then it can't change because it's gone exactly and so you so you know everything you know everything that will ever be about that object so it's actually a pretty interesting critique given the nature of sci-fi stories the things that people always say about sci-fi stories the like inspiring engineering and science stuff the quest for knowledge 
all that jazz. This movie is very clearly saying that the quest for knowledge divorced from emotion is destructive. I am only going to collect information and I'm going to ignore any of the consequences that may be resulting from it. So there's this, uh, I had to look this up. I remembered finding this before. There's a quote, an Albert Einstein quote that I really liked about the connection between science and philosophy. Because a lot of people now are kind of ignoring philosophy as a school because it makes a bunch of weird, wild assertions that aren't true. It's just a way to think about stuff. And people are very religiously devoted to science right now. Yes. So this was from a correspondence with, uh, it says correspondence with Robert Thornton, who I'm unfamiliar with. I agree with you about the significance and educational value of methodology as well as the history of philosophy of science. So many people today, even professional scientists, seem to me like somebody who has seen thousands of trees but never seen a forest. Uh, Weirdly enough, it it kind of uh, reminds me of Short Circuit. Mm. So uh, the, the movie with the robot and he gets struck by lightning and then suddenly it's much more alive. Uh, and at one point it's, you know, you know, it's like, what is this? And it's like, Oh, you know, I see this thing. I see the chemicals. I see the, um, you know, the, you know, the paper there. And then, you know, the, the guy's like, ah, oh, of course it's just a robot. But then, you know, you know, but it resembles these, you know, a bird or a butterfly. And it's sort of going beyond the specific data that is present while and to, to see what is, you know, what is, what is implied as opposed to what is for sure there. Yeah, there's a weird. I've keep I keep talking about this with various people, because we've gotten to I, I at least we haven't completely gotten to, but I've been seeing a lot of arguments, very supposedly scientifically based arguments that people are making, even though. A lot of them are based on a massive misunderstanding of science and biology. But a lot of people are trying to make very... Dang it. Like, there's a definite truth that you're getting to. A, a singular, literate, a, a literal, knowable Yeah, basically. Truth. What's my word? <laughs> right, people are trying to make a very literal argument using scientific facts about the truth of the world. They want to know a very literal truth that they can get to and tell people and base everything on. And that's just not how anything works. Yeah. (laughs) Even if there is a literal truth, first you have to define what in the world truth even means. But even if there is a very literal true thing about the universe and how it functions that is there and is like never changing you as a limited being with limited perceptual capacities can never know what it is and will never be able to find out what it is. So for you, it's basically immaterial. Yeah, the, the best we can do is the best guess given what we have observed via, you know, our very senses and, you know, and established as facts, but that conclusion we come to might be you know, similar to big T truth, 
but it might be completely off base too, and we would not have any you know, way to sort of figure that out. So the basic message that we're getting from the movie, the the explicit messaging in the movie, is saying, don't never use logic. Of course, logic is a very useful way to think about things, but trying to divorce logic completely from everything else is going to lead you to some pretty bad places, especially in like. You're showing V'ger, who's supposedly a being of pure logic because it's a computer. It's working from a lot of weird assumptions. Like, everything else is also a sentient machine. And these organic carbon things are interfering with the functions of that. They've infested the Enterprise. They're interfering with its creator on Earth. It can only see things around itself in the context of... I've decided as a base principle of my logical surmises that only artificial life forms are life forms. Only, only things that are like me count as life forms I should care about. And once you've gone there, that's all that's like a bad place to start your logic. Like you can get to logical places from there and it does, but it's not a worthwhile place to get to. People misunderstand what logic is. Logic is often seen, and it's portrayed here too, they do this in a lot of Star Trek, as the opposite of emotion. Like if you, if you removed all emotion, all you would be left with would be logic and reason. But logic and reason are just frameworks that we use to think about things. It's a very common language to think through stuff. It's a very useful way to think about things where you have to make sure that each statement is supported by all of the previous statements in a very mathematical kind of way to try to bolster arguments and examine your thinking processes. But it doesn't mean that if you've removed emotion from something, you are getting at an objective truth. Indeed. It is, I guess, to a certain degree, more a language than it is, you know, big T truth there. It is a way to you know, express and understand ideas and to have a conversation about them. But, you know, I could have a conversation about the pink elephant in the corner of my room here. It doesn't make, make that be a thing that's actually there. So, Well, the main thing that everyone forgets about logic, especially when they're talking about philosophy, but it gets into science too, is you're starting with your base assertions. Mm -hmm. Your base assertions are not necessarily true. Yes. So uh, we're going They're to They're just what this. you're starting yeah. from. If we assume as a base assertion that there is an invisible pink elephant in the corner of the room, then we can make these assumptions based on that assertion. Exactly. This is, I guess, one of the things I get into uh, often enough when I'm you know, trying to you know, uh, have a delight discussion with somebody that's usually just actually an argument. Uh, <laughs> That, you know, sometimes, you know, you know, there's a reason that we're not communicating well. And that's generally because our, our base assumptions about the situation are completely different. And in order to come to any sort of agreement on anything that's worthwhile, we need to figure out where those uh, assumptions are different and negotiate which ones we're actually going to accept going forward go, uh, on this here. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it might require me to you know, reevaluate what my assumptions are or the other person or sometimes both. Um, and there's maybe even a few cases where we can sort of sort things out even without changing our assumptions, but those are pretty rare. Uh, and 
to come to anything sort of useful as a conclusion, though, we actually need to understand what those are so that we can follow each other's logic in order to get, you know, ob observe our, our, our end solutions. And, you know, even if we don't agree on those assumptions still. And, you know, otherwise, it's, you know, if we are unwilling to do that, we're just, you know, what we're effectively saying, I'm just not going to believe you because I don't want to believe you. Yeah. And, theor you know, theoretically, you get to, like, um, you would all, in theory, if you're using pure logic, because pure logic has a very specific set of rules to detail what's true and what's not true and what follows from what. If you're starting from the same base assumptions, you should always get to the same eventual outcome. But it just doesn't, like, stuff just doesn't work that way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's also rare to find someone who's actually going through the formal uh, expressions of, of pure logic, too. So <laughs> I guess that's what uh, Spock was doing. <laughs> I don't know. I hear so many people saying that you need to do logic and reason and ignore emotion, which is pretty silly given that you're dealing with real people in real circumstances and emotions are very useful for this. You know, there's um, an old concept in philosophy. It's kind of an interesting one to look at the pure logical things. It's called the repugnant conclusion. I'm guessing it has something to do with, uh, if you come to a crappy conclusion, maybe you had bad assumptions. No, it's a very logically laid out argument, but the conclusion that you reach is obviously morally reprehensible. I'm going to give a very bad overview of this for time. Okay, go for it. <laughs> but the, the basic idea is you can, as a base assumption, say that you can sort of uh, divide up people's lives into like happiness and unhappiness. And one of your basic things that you should be doing is trying to increase the amount of happiness that you have in the world. Um, there's two ways that you can go about this if everyone's life is made up of happiness and unhappiness. Um, you can try to increase the happiness of everyone. That runs into some problems, like but some people are happier, might make other people less happier, etc., etc. The other thing that you could do is to increase the population. So you get more people that are happy, sort you of get as DePaul. More people. And then the basic idea here, the reason that this is the repugnant conclusion, is that logically, it just makes sense to ignore the quality of life and actual happiness of people and simply increase the population. Because the more people you have, the more general happiness you have in the world. Because every person has at least some small level of happiness, therefore the more people you have, the more happiness you get. So you should simply increase the population to increase the amount of happiness. And logically, that all works. Yeah. So uh, you got your uh, minimal uh, amount of uh, happiness, you know, we'll call it epsilon, times the number of people. And to get more happiness, you just add one to that uh, population number. Even if epsilon is quite small. Yeah. But there's nothing illogical about that, even though anyone thinking about it can recognize that having a massive population of people who are living generally bad lives is kind of a repugnant thing to get to. I'm starting to have flashbacks to that uh, one video about uh, someone who, quote, solved SimCity 3. <laughs> <laughs>
It was basically I don't that. Think I've seen this. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, let's have millions of people packed into this city, and you know, everyone's you know sick and living super short lives. But the population's high, so you know we've maximized uh, you know everything in the game. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially that, and this is the problem that you get to when you try to divorce emotion or anything human from logic. Logic can get you anywhere. Logic can reach any conclusion you want. You just have to start with the right, the right base assumptions and use the right logical string, and you can get to any conclusion you choose. Indeed. So uh, be careful about those things you assume, you, you, you assume as being you know, your starting points there. Uh, otherwise, you're going to end up with, you know, crazy packed city there. Then something that I actually liked... Um, from a thing I was I was rewatching some like old Stargate a while ago. And there was an episode that I'd kind of forgotten about, but I just loved I really liked the message of it. Cause they had one of the characters was basically putting himself in danger to try to like uncover the secrets of this this alien civilization. The whole place is collapsing around him. And he's like, No, I'm just going to stay here and figure this out because it's so drastically important. And the one guy, Just the one where they uh, they find Ernst there, yeah. And so the one guy basically says, "No, there's no point in learning something if you can never share it with anyone." Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, it's like, well, you've learned the secrets of the of the cosmos, but uh, now what? They don't really, you know. <laughs> Like, I'm never going to be one to say that acquiring knowledge in a general sense can't be good because you never know what's going to be useful and not. But acquiring knowledge simply for the sake of acquiring knowledge really doesn't do anything. Acquiring knowledge always has some associated cost. So, like, if, if you're never going to have anything that you do, if you're just hoarding it in the way that they're showing Vijay doing here, just hoarding information for no particular reason... It's simply destructive. Yes. It's it's become a, uh, a an information dragon. It is hoarding, but you know, taking it away from everything around it. And this is where I think, personally, the end of the movie, the end of the story, gets a bit strained because you have this. It's it never actually does return the data it never has does fulfill the purpose that it says that it has it gets to find its own purpose they have a thing at the end like oh it's we've given it the ability to to figure out its own purpose in life and like fine um but it just killed a bunch yeah. of people uh maybe and we'll have some regret about now that? it's just yeah. gone yeah you're like well too bad about all those people on all those ships and planets that it ate but we let it turn into a new life form, some sort of interdimensional life form that what what if it's just gonna go off and eat entire dimensions yeah, that could now? Be bad. Like what Like all you did was let it have its own life, which is fine, that's great. It can determine its own purpose, but we're basically ignoring that it just did a massive amount of harm. Well, I guess there's maybe some question about you know, you know, when it was doing the harm, how aware was it? You know, you know, it is, you know, very limited. It's sort of views. 
due to the framework it's sort of been you know built into you know so does it have a moral obligation uh after that point when it sort of you know becomes the next level there of whatever it is now uh you know to sort of look back and go oh my bad at all because if it's you know it's completely ignorant of what's going on how how much moral responsibility does it have i guess the thing is, I'm not really talking about the moral responsibility of V'ger. I'm talking about the moral responsibility of everyone else in the situation who aren't even showing the smallest amount of regret yeah. <laughs> that all these horrible things happened. They're basically saying, we've done the thing we wanted to do, therefore any associated costs are fine and, and forgettable now. Well, at least we saved Earth, and that's good enough. Uh, let's get out of here. You have a moral responsibility as a person to at least care when something awful happens to someone else. You don't even necessarily, depending on you and the situation, you don't even necessarily have a moral obligation to do something about it, but you do have a moral obligation to care. Which, there wasn't a whole lot of caring here, just more of a, we got a job to do, guys, let's go carry it out. And now it's done. <laughs> and they're there with V. They never even ask if it's possible to like undata storage something. True. I think my main, like the entire th critique of that can be kind of boiled down to how they handled Aaliyah. Because she dies, yeah, she, she gets no killed. More. They have like one scene where Decker goes, Oh my God, no, they've killed her. And then a thing that sh looks exactly like her shows up. He's like, oh, well, oh, that's fine just, then. She's back in a new form. With more servos. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't care. Ba like, you're doing, not only are you doing the uh, general sexist reading that you can have here of a woman is only her looks to the point that if you have something that looks exactly like her, it's basically the same thing as if yeah, she never died. That's, um, a little shallow. Mm-hmm. But you're also like just ignoring the cost, the like human harm yes. that's been done because you're so enamored with your new robot. The fact that we don't mourn her, we don't care. She doesn't get a visible funeral scene like we get in some other movies and shows. We don't really like mourn her for more than a second. Decker's angry for a little bit, but it goes away as soon as he gets his duplicate. Yeah, he starts it's like I'm going to be angry and then oh I'm now no longer angry. Cause it looks exactly like her. And we never even get the like we never even get the like well she's not really gone thing of the probe regaining all of its memories. Yeah. The probe doesn't do that. The probe remains kind of distant through the whole thing except for like one loving look at the end that's supposed to justify the entire endeavor yeah it's it's very uh unsatisfactory all right that was most of my critiques yeah. so you can have your thing <laughs> so so maybe decker uh is it a you know as part of Vijer now has the opportunity to maybe right some of these wrongs but we don't see that and it's not in the movie so shrug as far as we know, Vidra just exploded. Yes. <laughs> it's like, well, it's not here anymore. The Enterprise is, and uh, that's all we know. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a 
I guess it's a lot of ways the movie kind of ended abruptly. Yeah. Actually, there's this this is a story from one of my old art classes. We had a we had a unit on in, on animation, and the teacher was selling the story of like some some previous student had made an animated short, which was the assignment of a turtle walking around, and it kind of interacted with various things. And then at the end, the turtle exploded. <laughs> and he goes, "Why did you make the turtle explode?" The guy says, "Well." I didn't know how to end it. <laughs> Which I guess kind of fits with this ending too, yes. <laughs> yeah, why did V'ger explode? What else was it going to do? <laughs> it's transcended, so its material form is just dispersed. So don't worry about it. So uh, you want me to talk about uh, Voyager? Yeah, they only made two of the things, yes, right? <laughs> they only made two. <laughs> So Voyager, which is how we avoid this whole situation. So uh, by not having Voyager three through six, we've avoided the uh, the Earth being uh, beset by a giant and machine intelligence in the future. So go us. But uh, as I said, uh, you know, at the time at the time the Voyager probes had only been launched a couple years previous. Uh, Voyager one and uh, in seventy seven and Voyager two as well in seventy seven, uh, which I believe they were actually launched in reverse order. So that's a little weird. Um, but, uh, the, the, the short of the long is that they were, uh, set up to basically take a path to the solar system that, uh, doesn't happen too, too often due to that, uh, that allows, uh, a spacecraft to effectively slingshot its way past the outer planets in a, uh, in a, a series there. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact time frame there, but it's like over a century, I think that, you know, between each, uh, opportunity for, for something like this. And so they're like, we want to make sure we get these out right around the, uh, this, this point in time so we can go and have uh, some good pictures of the outer planets because we really haven't had much there. <laughs> you know, previous to that, there had been the Pioneer probes, which are sort of the, we're going to sort of test making space probes that go out to the outer solar system and, you know, make sure that our fancy Voyager probes are not going to, like, melt if they go near Jupiter. And, uh, you know, those are the early seventies and long story short, they're kind of glad they did because, you know, it's like, oh, there is actually a complicated magneto plasma environment around Jupiter. We should probably make sure our electronics and our Voyager craft are set up to not be fried from that. Uh, so, um, so it's good that those went out there. So, you know, if you want to say pioneer 10, 11, where Voyagers three and four, because the weird ordering thing. Then we're still on a couple uh, Voyager probes. So I guess you could also add New Horizons, which went out to Pluto, uh, which uh, passed by there in 2015 uh, as Voyager 5. Um, but we're still down to Voyager 6, so we're, we're still safe here. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, I remember uh, it was the, you know, I think it was the early 90s, uh, being up all night uh, when uh, Voyager 2 was uh, approaching Neptune. And, uh, you know, getting in uh, new, uh, you know, pictures and things like that sort of semi live because, you know, it still takes hours for the signal to get from the probe to Earth. Uh, and is you know, it's like, wow, this is like the first vision of a pl new planet. And that was sort of, a, you know, you know, really exciting for me. And uh, it is a uh, yeah, I, it is one of those things that I kind of look back fondly. It's like this is sort of 
my moment of the spirit of discovery sort of coming home for me here. This is something that is, you know, I am joining lots of people throughout the world, but you know, still this is a very much a, I am seeing new wonders that are, that are beyond our, you know, any previous experience of uh, human beings here. You know, the, the new frontier, that final frontier is being pushed back just a little bit further with this, with this experience here. So that was really neat. Uh, yeah, the uh, you know, Voyager one uh, went by Jupiter and Saturn and then kind of like, well, I'm going to leave the solar system now, uh, which is intentional, of course. Uh, Voyager 2, though, uh, did also uh, hang out by Neptune, of course, as well as Uranus. And uh, that's how we got a lot of our uh, early good pictures of both of those and uh, also got to experience some of the moons around them, too. Um, so that's pretty cool stuff there. But, uh, yeah, so there's been a number of uh, probes sent out, uh, various planets at this point. And, uh, you know, that's something we've been doing this last, you know, you know, half century plus now. Um, so, uh, Gavin, what's your favorite space probe? <laughs> well, the only ones that I remember hugely not being involved heavily in the sciences as a kid <laughs> were the Voyagers, because they're the famous ones. <laughs> Did you remember the Pioneers, though? Barely. <laughs> <laughs> they, they weren't as advanced. They didn't, weren't as, weren't as uh, fancy that they're... Uh, their images weren't as clear, so. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking up just a little bit since Voyager, like, features so heavily in this movie. I was looking up a bit, and it said that while the Voyager probes are beyond the influences of the solar winds at this point, uh, it could possibly be another 10,000 years before they get outside of what could be defined as the solar system. Which means that if this thing was launched 300 years before, there's a black hole somewhere pretty close in. Well, that's why I think uh, sort of references, you know, maybe they were calling wormholes black holes at some point there in Star Trek. I, that's my only explanation here. But still uh, pretty inside the solar system. Yes, uh, unless Voyager 6 was had a warp drive or something like that. But I didn't see one on the, on the, the model they had there, so... <laughs> But uh, I guess sort of thinking about that, uh, I started wondering, like, you know, if they if this fictional Voyager 6 fell into a wormhole, it could potentially have popped out on the far side of the universe at some point in the distant past as well. So it could have been just a coincidence that it returned to Earth at this point in time because it had taken like 10 million years in order to get back, uh, which would, you know, also, you know, Explain somewhat the, you know, uh, you know the, the incredible distances it's been traveling and things like that, uh, you know. So it could be from well outside our galaxy at this point, um, but it is, you know, it's a, a possibility that's not actually well founded in the movie. So yeah. <laughs> well, basically, all we need to know is that it ran into aliens. It got super. It got souped up, and then came back. Yes. <laughs> So uh, it's a little different than Nomad's uh, encounter with that one uh, probe there. Uh, you know, that wasn't just a smash it together and uh, see what happens. It's, you know, it's actually a, huh, well, we're going to rebuild you. We're going to $6 million band you here. That's pretty cool. It is a somewhat interesting idea that you keep running into in these things. I guess it's just a manifestation of the inherent dangers of exploration that... They keep having these storylines that are, we sent out a probe or whatever, it got picked up by something, came back, and tried to kill us all. 
Maybe we should stop probing deep space. Uh, I also wonder if uh, this uh, this Voyager 6 had any gold records. I don't know. Did they put those on both Voyagers? Yes, they did on uh, both Voyagers. Uh, so uh, for those who are unaware of, uh, the, uh, the these records here are basically a, a message to the stars, to space, to whatever, you know, centuries millions of years who knows down the line that uh you know might encounter these probes uh you know despite how unlikely that is that they'll ever actually be near a, a star system again uh the uh you know, that contains various information uh you know sort of you know you know pictures like this is how you sort out binary sort of stuff uh here is some information about you know earth relative to some pulsars Here's a circle, uh, <laughs> as well as, you know, pictures of earth, chemistry, DNA, uh, diagrams of human beings, uh, various human activities, the UN building, um, you know, Arecibo. Uh, this is what sheet music looks like as well as, yeah. So this is all encoded in these records here, but there's also, uh, sounds and things like that. Uh, unfortunately, my, 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 notes here are on a different page here there we go uh as well as you know so like the sounds of earth this is what laughter sounds like so there's a little sound clip in a very analog sort of format uh that just you know if you were to play it you would hear somebody laughing there's also music so uh there's you know various bits of things from various you know cultures around the world uh like some navajo uh you know chants uh you know a, a song from china a whole bunch of uh, tunes from Bach and a couple from Beethoven, uh, because you know, you know they're, they're they're famous classical composers, so why not? Uh, uh, Men's House song from New, New Guinea, uh, as well as Johnny Be Good. <laughs> it's out amongst the stars now. <laughs> uh, but there is uh, also a whole collection of greetings uh, in uh, various native languages and things like that. Uh, that you know. They're not all the same words here. Like, you know, the Persian translation to English is like, hello to the residents of far skies. Uh, you know, the Urdu one is peace on you. We think the habits of this earth send our greetings to you. Uh, you know, Burmese is, are you well? So various sorts of like, how, what's up, what's going on, that kind of stuff. Uh, as well as, you know, you know, diagrams of, uh, you know, the Earth's solar system and other information, you know, physically on plates and, you know, mechanisms there as well as instructions on how to actually read out all this information in very uh i guess ikea format uh so that if someone were to have all these pieces here they could actually assemble a, a you know a reader for this uh in order to extract all the information uh and this is all sort of put together by carl Sagan and a, and a, a crew of folks uh to be not just a message to you know, whoever may find this down the road, but also sort of to bring people together on earth, that this is something that's kind of a time capsule in a way that we are dropping into the infinite vastness of space. And so even if, you know, something horrible happens on earth, there's going to be at least, a, you know, a piece of this uh, existence of ours out there that is hopefully going to be a, sort of a reflection of some of the best of us. That's, that's kind of cool when you think about it. Now, I kind of like the idea that the thing did have one of these gold records because they made so many assumptions about the way that another 
sentient species might encounter or interact with the world in order to try to encode this information, that it's kind of a fun idea that it had one. The alien machines found it. It meant nothing to them. And therefore, the thing still knows nothing about us as people. <laughs> like, hmm, this seems like a superfluous part here. Uh, maybe it means something. We'll leave it inside and untouched. All right, moving on. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a train sound, too. Choo-choo. <laughs> yeah, nice. by the time well, anything finds it, like, I get it as a time capsule and a bringing people together thing, which seems to be a lot of what people have done with various space science things. But, like, as a time capsule, anything communicative, it's better time capsule than anything communicative. By the time it gets anywhere and anything gets back here, they're going to be like, where are the trains? Like, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess we'll have to look into Uber Wikipedia here to f try to figure out what that even means. You uh, guys don't look like, don't look anything like these pictures. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's uh, human version one. Uh, <laughs> they kind of sucked. Uh they still had things like racism. It, it was just just <laughs> awful. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, yeah, I guess uh, this does remind me a little bit of you know you know why why explore why 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 seek out the uh, the information out there why why to why to even send a Voyager six uh, you know sometime down the road potentially I guess uh, you know you know because you know you know the why space Gapwind why. <laughs> No, oh, I've been really cynical on this recently. Now, it doesn't help that, you know, there's billionaires trying to colonize it. Yeah. So. Well, there's a certain amount of this somewhat inspiring thing that a lot of people try to do and even try to retroactively put on two space programs. There was an interesting thing in, like, the moon program bringing the entire country together and working toward a common cause of exploration and beating Russia to somewhere um but looking into the actual history not everyone was on board there was a massive political argument on whether you should use those resources for this or put them towards some actual reconstructive projects that were necessary and uh they actually took some stuff away from some more civil rights based reconstruction things that were going to be needed in several cities to put towards the space program. So it wasn't really the giant unifying force that everyone wants to remember it as. It certainly was for a certain segment of upper-class white people. Yes. But there was a lot of actual political argument there. Yeah, there. Yeah, that, you still sometimes uh, see that to this day, though you know, the NASA budget compared to, say, the defense budget now, it's kind of like, well, it's kind of a drop of the bucket in comparison, so... Yeah, maybe we should be uh, getting some of that, you know, you know, money put to, you know, good things, you know, from from the bigger option here as opposed to the uh, the smaller. That option is true, here. and I'm not trying to say that exploration for the sake of exploration is useless. Um, sometimes it seems like some of the higher-minded space stuff is a way to bring people together in a somewhat artificial way that keeps us from dealing with our other problems. Even to the point where criticizing space exploration generally is seen as something that's so anti-scientific and anti-discovery and stupid that saying maybe we should deal with some of our problems here is considered kind of blasphemous in certain segments of the sci-fi fandom and scientific community. I'm kind of in the we can do both sort of thing. We can solve our problems on Earth as well as seek out the stars. 
and it is to a certain degree, you know, even perhaps necessary that we, you know, tr uh, tackle both these simultaneously, uh, because there is, you know, there are material benefits that are brought back to Earth as it's uh, where, you know, from developing the technology f to explore space, and by, you know, and some of that is very useful for solving our problems here on Earth. Uh, and also solving our problems here on Earth means our lives suck less. So, well, I think I've been a little bit, I've been cynical of this kind of argument for quite a while. And I don't mean to throw a damper on people's parade here, even though I tend to. That you had, um, you have arguments They're like brilliant. this, like the space program, like the, the resources that you put into the space program invent a lot of things that then get folded back into everyday life, which one, you could say that about almost any well-funded scientific endeavor. But yes. yeah, figuring out some of the technical problems that you needed to do led to certain discoveries and things. But then you also have a thing of like, well, then why does some random company own the patent for Velcro if it was invented by, the go by government funding to fund a government endeavor that we all paid for with tax money? That is a good question. And uh, really, stuff like that should be you know, out there for everyone, uh, not held by, uh, you know, once again, a knowledge dragon of a sorts. <laughs> and then you also wind up with the, the thing that I've become very disillusioned by recently is the selectivity in our inspiring everyone has come together stories. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, space travel is this big, important, oh, my God, we're all exploring as people. It crosses nations and cities and whatever, 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 and brings us together as humankind. We just this year put aside all national borders and whatever, whatever divides, invented a full viral vaccine in under a year, which is something that everyone said at the beginning of the pandemic was full-on impossible. Indeed. And no one's going, oh my god, look, giant inspiring coming together story of every nation on Earth working together. We should be having exactly the same starry-eyed, oh my god, look at the cooperation stories about this, but we're just not. Yeah. Uh, I, though in this case, I'd maybe argue that, you know, it, there might be more of that if the, uh, yeah, the patent of it wasn't, I guess, held up so much that uh, the third world still needs to be, uh, you know, buying their 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 uh, their vaccines. But that's and exactly the same critique that we just made about space travel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, once again, capitalism ruins the day. But mm. there's a capitalism ruins the day in a way that we're supposed to ignore because space travel is so important and inspiring, and a way that's supposed to ruin it for everyone working together. And the other one, a cynical part of me wants to argue that we uphold the one and not the other because one of them reaps a real-world benefit that shows that you can actually work together across these artificial borders for a real common purpose that is actually useful and threatens some structural institutions. And the other one is high-minded and scientific to the point that it becomes more structurally useless in everyday life and doesn't really threaten power institutions too much. Hmm, yes. <laughs> uh, I guess jumping back a little bit here to... Uh why space uh there is uh one other thing that uh that, you know, isn't necessarily about the here and now uh that uh, is uh, maybe something to remember here 
Uh, and I'll uh, go ahead and quote uh, Commander Jeffrey Sinclair from Babylon 5. Uh, you know, his thoughts on this thing. You know, uh, ask 10 different scientists about the environment, population, control, genetics, and you'll get 10 different answers. But there's one thing every scientist on the planet agrees on. Whether it happens in a hundred years or a thousand years or a million years, eventually our sud will grow cold and go out. When that happens, it won't just take us. It'll take Marilyn Monroe and Lao Tzu and Einstein and Morabutu and Buddy Holly and Aristophanes. And all of this, all of this was for nothing. Unless we go to the stars. Which, you know, to a certain degree, I kind of agree. Uh, you know, other bits like, well, sometimes for everything, there's a time for it to pass. But, uh, you know, there's, I guess, maybe no shame in trying to preserve some of the best of ourselves, you know, out there, you know, you know, in the universe, you know, even if it isn't necessarily going to be helping us in the here and now, just as long as we're not like shooting ourselves in the uh, foot in order to do that. So, uh, keep your priorities straight, but in the long run, this is maybe a good goal to have. Which is a little of the problem that I see because there's a long-term goal fine i can see that by the time the sun goes out in any capacity no matter whether or not humans like extinct or not like whatever is left of our descendants is not going to be human anymore that's just how evolution functions on that time scale yes and unless you're looking at doctor who for some reason we're kind yeah. of <laughs> using that we keep talking about that and exploring space getting to multiple planets lasting oh my god it's so important we've got something that's going to kill us all in 30 years that we don't care about and are ignoring yeah so uh as i said don't shoot ourselves the foot because we do got some stuff we're very 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 concerned with the fact that the sun is going to explode in six billion years the fact that the world is going to be too hot to live on in 30 pay no mind yes <laughs> so uh as i said i you know i do generally agree with the sentiment but there is maybe some other things we need to be uh focusing on here which space exploration can help to a certain degree. Uh, you know, keep learning about Earth uh, at the end of the day has been the biggest uh, beneficiary of this sort of exploration. You know, getting up there and looking back down, seeing how our planet's changing, how it's evolving, how, how its systems work, and coming to realize, oh, we're kind of screwing them up is kind of one of those big things that uh, has been, you know, it would be nice if we're, we were doing more about it, but it is sort of one of those things where it's, this is very important information, and it's very good that we have this information in order to, you know, if we get off our butts, do something about it. And while I do think that's true, to certain extents, I feel like I have to keep being a minor killjoy and point out Go that we it. have documented <laughs> evidence of people knowing this was a problem since the 1800s. Yes. <laughs> and we didn't do anything about it for the last 200 years. So saying that we discovered this with satellites, while it's given us more information, and if we use that information, it might help us out of the situation we've gotten ourselves into, people have been covering this up for 200 years. That's a bit of a long-running problem that we've been uh, quite bad at. But, uh, you know, if we uh, do start fixing things, though, maybe we'll... Uh Make some good use of that satellite data. Fingers crossed. Did you have but, any uh, other big things? Oh, uh, that's most of the stuff here. Uh, yeah, the gold record stuff's pretty cool still. So, <laughs> well, I could, I could list more more of the images here. Uh, 
there's uh, uh, an x-ray there's some cars there's some so, so, uh, a guy floating out in the space a spacesuit and people eating like some like a chicken and an ice cream and down on a whole pitcher of water it looks like <laughs> oh yeah guy like floating in space i didn't get a chance to mention in any way but for whatever reason every effects shot in this movie has a little spacesuit dude who's just yep. sort of flying around or doing flips or waving <laughs> and he's in the same spacesuit and i know that some of these scenes take place like light years apart in the movie but it looks like the same dude <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so there's a little spacesuit guy who's just following just us around, around the whole movie. Yeah, he's uh, he, he's here to observe and uh, make sure we're well greeted when we do our flybys of uh, various space stations, spacecraft, or alien uh, probes. You yeah. Know? Just gave me a weird flashback. Do you have any memory of those old Intel commercials with the like dancing clean suit guys? A little bit. That it reminds me of that. It's one of the dancing clean suit guys. My dad worked at Intel, so I had like keychains and stuff that were the clean suit guys. It was like a big deal. Your dad was one of them. Yeah, he could have been one of the dan- one of the clean suit dudes. Maybe he went to space. <laughs> he started <laughs> waving at everyone. It's like hello. Yes. <laughs> All right, I-, I think we've gotten pretty silly here now. Yeah, which means that we can get even sillier since we were depressing a minute ago. That usually means it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, welcome back to the galaxy's favorite game show. Uh, The theme music seems to have changed this week. well, not the theme's music for the, the Galaxy Favorite Game Show, but, you know, the Star Trek uh, you know, theme music here. Gepwin, is, is is that some next generation tunes I've been hearing? I know, it's the one I've been waiting for. Don't say the theme music yeah. changes. I have to dig that up in post. Don't scare me like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the stuff where we're watching, it's theme music change. Not the actual episode here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we got some, some new tunes here uh, to... Uh, for our Star Trek here, but uh, the Galaxy's favorite game show is still going to be collecting up various points here for our various contestants, and uh, we got a few winners here. Uh, they've uh, they've managed to uh, actually uh, eventually get to uh, enough points to maybe draw this out a little bit longer, just like the movie. Uh, <laughs> to uh, so I can count out surprises. There we go. Uh, so our first one is the Space Baby Prize, which goes to Viger because hello, new life form, I guess. That might as well be maybe a gob, but it's also a child, so we might still be in trouble, and yeah. And all those people still died, but what does it win, Gep? When- the Space Baby V'ger wins Interdimensional Space Baby Food, which is that favorite interdimensional space baby shower game. Can you taste this, and does it exist on the same dimensional plane? Hmm, it's a good question, uh... We'll have to uh, probe subspace, I think, in order to uh, get some good answers on this here. Hmm. But uh, we've got some more prizes to hand out, too. Our second one is the Whoops Prize, which goes to Kirk for almost getting Enterprise destroyed in a warp wormhole thingy, I guess, because he was super eager to get going and didn't know some things about the phasers and, you know, was just being impatient and Kirk-like. So what does he win, Captain? Kirk gets a fun trip to the holodeck where he can pretend to be captain. And everything will just work out, because he's Kirk, which I swear is probably 90% of the rest of this series. 
<laughs> yes, Kirk, uh, you are for realsy still on the bridge of the Enterprise. Uh, have fun. He certainly goes from utterly incompetent to everything just works out awfully fast. Yes. Well, he's Admiral now, so I guess it comes with the pay raise. <laughs> Our third prize is the Everybody Loves Robots prize. Uh, goes to Robo Ilea, especially when it comes to Decker, if you know what I mean. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, Ilea you know, had that vow of chastity, but the robot version maybe doesn't. So what what does uh, Robo Ilea win, Gepwin? Robo Ilea wins what I'm sure is going to come out now that he's been dragged in too is robo decker and then they can be the ultimate love robots together because that's the only way that robots deserve love hmm. is other robots i guess hmm. that uh might complicate some things later in the series in uh, star trek but anywho um our uh, next one is the mind over minds prize which goes to spock though in this case he's the one who got uh bested while trying to mind meld with v'ger uh, what does he win, Gepwin? Spock gets a mind band-aid. The number of times he gets mind blasted in these shows. It's like we need some sort of mind medication. <laughs> it's a super aspirin that uh, it helps those especially with psychic powers. Hmm. Except, you know, you put it on your forehead. It's like head on. Oh no. They're not gonna they're gonna they're gonna come after us, Gepwin. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh um, uh, let's, final prize there is the Transporter Gore Prize, which goes to Sonark uh, for uh, having a semi-off-screen gruesome death due to a transporter accident, and uh, that was real kind of gooey, probably. What does he win, Gepwood? Sonark wins a very nice decorative urn. It's one of the things with transporter accident deaths is you don't even have to bother with the cremation. Just scoop it right in there. Yep. You've uh, been... Uh, Rendered down to uh, your component parts. Um, have fun. Hmm. Anyway, that's all I got here for today, uh, Gepwind. And, uh, you know, uh, our, uh, I, I'm trying to drag this out even longer again because, you know, the movie did too. So feel free to interrupt here to, uh, to, to play us off here. Oh so my we God, can, it's uh, a long yeah. shot oh. of, the, of the game show flying by. <laughs> it's very detailed and pretty, but it's so long. <laughs> yes, thank you all for indulging the weird thing that we insist on doing at the end of the episode called the galaxy's favorite game show Woo! so uh i guess it is important to note that when Scotty flew the pod up the, the shuttle there to the Enterprise in dry dock there, he approached it from behind, went out to the front, went into dry dock, flew by the ship again, and then docked with it from behind. See, the thing is, there's <laughs> a very, there's a lot of construction happening. You have to take a very exact flight path that avoids all of the construction-y ships and people that are around still fixing up the outside of the ship. But, but the back end of the dry dock is completely open. It also <laughs> was interesting that they keep using this weird little side port thingy on the ship, mm -hmm. which seems massively out of scale to me. Yes. But, um, they, they have a docking bay. 
Yeah, so uh, why not just use that? Just open her up and fly on in. Or maybe it's packed full of shuttles. Could be. Like, they're just stacked up in there. There's no room to even, like, go fly in there, close the door, jump out, you know, leave the docking bay, then fly the thing, you know, the the pot, kick the pot out afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) So next week we get into what is, there's, there's a lot of debate on this topic. It's definitely in the running for the best of the Star Trek movies. You mean uh, Star Trek Into Darkness? <laughs> <laughs> that one comes a long ways, but, long ways on. <laughs> but but it, it features Khan. That's the next one, right? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so next time we're doing Wrath of Khan. People who only know modern Star Trek, yeah, he's the dude from Star Trek Into Darkness. If you're gonna remake a Star Trek movie, you should not. Make it Wrath of Khan. Yeah, that's just kind of a baffling thing for me there. Yeah, it was so bad. (laughs) So anyway, the motion picture got kind of mixed reviews because mostly it's lack of action Mm -hmm. and overlong special effects. But it did earn uh, almost $140 million, which meant the studio greenlighted a sequel, but with a slightly lower budget. And slightly less marketing, which we're going to see is a common thread amongst this. There's a very well-known adage among Star Trek fans that every odd-numbered Star Trek movie is terrible, and every even-numbered Star Trek movie is pretty good. Um, For the most part. But for some (laughs) reason, the studio wound up bouncing back and forth, so every odd-numbered Star Trek movie has a slightly higher budget and better marketing because they were like, well, the last one was good and got pretty good reception. So let's increase the budget. Then that movie doesn't do as well. Uh, gets a slightly lower reception. So they lower the budget and expectations for the next one, which turns out to be pretty good, which means that they get a higher budget and expectations for the next one, which wasn't as good that, you know, so on. And so the pattern continued for quite some time, <laughs> but the next one is in the running for, and is my personal favorite, even though I recognize that some of the other ones have some better things going. As far as movies go, this has everything that I like. It's kind of a swashbuckly action space movie, which I enjoy. Yeah. So it's my personal favorite of the original Star Trek movies, even though I recognize the arguments that it's maybe not the best of them. I am hesitant to say any of them are necessarily the best. There are some that do things very well. And this is one that does a lot of things very well. And of course, we are going to get the return of the amazing Ricardo Maltaban. Ricardo. <laughs> Reprising his role of Khan in Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so, uh, does this. Should I also get out some Freakazoid jokes as well? Sure. Excellent. (laughs) All right. So you can join us next week or two weeks, whatever schedule we wind up doing on this. I shouldn't name schedules at the end of these things. It just confuses everyone, including me. So sometime in the near future. Yeah. Sometime in the near future, we're going to be covering Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Khan! Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, guess who gets 
buried alive. Buried alive. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>